Good morning. It is very, very morning today, isn't it? And you are the few, the proud that made it out. Good job. Good job online. All right. So good morning. My name is Rich. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. Um, if it is your first time with us, welcome. We're grateful that you're here. We have a bag of freshly roasted coffee in the cafe for you if, uh, if you're into that sort of a thing. If you have joined us online for the first time, welcome. Drop your name in the comment bar on the side. We'd love to be able to welcome you well. We're glad that you're here. Please raise your hand if you do not have a Bible with you this morning. You'll need one. Um, it'll be really helpful this morning to be able to see the passage kind of in context. So please raise your hand. The ushers will pass one out. Okay, so we're in the season of Lent. Lent is a 40-day period of time that leads up to Easter, kind of like preparing for Christmas, right? But instead of decking the halls, we uh, reflect on, uh, on our need for Christ. We take this as an opportunity to reflect on our need because reflecting on our needs continually positions us well to be able to receive the good news of Easter in a more full way. So, when Nate asked me to preach this morning, he asked me to take a more autobiographical lens to the sermon. So I'm going to first share a bit of my story. Then I'm going to teach out of a passage in the Bible where Jesus um, teaches a parable in the Gospel of Luke. And then finally, I'll have some observations about that passage. Okay? But please know that I'm sharing a bit of my story, and I'm preaching out of the Word, and I recognize that there's a little bit of a danger in that and too closely relating my story with the gospel. My story might demonstrate aspects of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Does that make sense? So forgive me if there's any unfortunate overlap. Okay? So picture this. I'm 13 years old, middle school uh, in Rockland. I'm standing on a painted number um, on the blacktop at P.E., and about half the school is in a circle around me, also standing on their respective numbers for roll call. And then I'm in awesome 90s get-up PE gear, right? You guys kind of picture that. So there's a delay in the roll call. You know, it's the same thing every time we do PE. And there's a delay, and everyone's kind of wondering what's going on. And a uniformed police officer enters the middle of the circle and comes right up to me, and he... Uh, after cutting the lock off my locker and getting all of my clothes, escorts me to the office. So I'm found with um, some drugs and a bunch of stimulants that I was selling to other kids, 13. I wish I could, like, tell you that was the marker in my story when everything changed and got better. Uh, but I, that was just kind of a, more or less a marker on my descent downhill from there. So I was labeled the bad kid, rightly so in certain respects, and I desperately tried to live up to that reputation. Throughout middle and high school, I was high on one thing or another pretty much the entire time. It wasn't only using, I was selling, and I was pretty good at it. Um, obviously, a bunch of other problematic behaviors that went along with that. And I was praying, but not to God. I was praying on the vulnerable. Anybody I could exploit, I was all about it. By my junior year, um, I had the distinguished honor of having the highest amount of detention hours at Rockland High School. <laughs> so spiritually, 
I was an arguing atheist. Um, to be honest, uh, I thought the notion, the idea of Jesus was about as believable as the Easter bunny. just made no sense to me. I didn't have a spiritual bone in my body, didn't think that people really even believed all this stuff anyway. To me, Christianity was more of a moralistic encouragement, not a real faith. The idea that I needed God, what we're doing here in Lund, just didn't compute on any level. I thought I needed nobody, fully self-sufficient. That's how I saw myself. All this continued into my early 20s. By the time I was 21, I was in a serious relationship. The problem is, is that her friends were terrible, almost as bad as mine. And so in a really pathetic attempt of manipulation, I thought, she needs new friends. Where should I take her to find new friends? Where do you think I turned? I went to the church to find new, nice people, <laughs> nice people like you guys in this really twisted, manipulative thing. So the next Sunday, I walked into a Protestant church for the first time in my life at the invitation of a, a guy I used to sell drugs to who had changed his life around. So in between my eye rolls and like, what in the world, I started actually listening. So my curiosity was sparked, and I started to study over the next few months, things started changing, to my surprise. God started take, like chipping the callousness off my heart. A few months into this weird and dis disorienting journey, it was obvious I was headed in a different direction than where I came from. The relationship ended, and although I was stubborn for a while, I recognized something that's changed my life forever. And that's that I needed God. In every aspect of my life, I needed him. So I cried out to God, and he, like, answered my prayers. And through tears and a crushing sense of my own inadequacy, I had this inexplicable peace. He filled me with his spirit. I repented of my sin, and I started on this new journey. I got a new heart. One day I was reading in God's Word, and I came across Galatians 2.20, not even knowing that it was like a famous passage. And it just so perfectly describes where I was at that I, it was the first thing I memorized. As I myself no longer live, but it's Christ that lives within me. So I'll live my life in this earthly body, trusting in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave his life for me. So from that period on, I began this journey, this journey of growth in God's grace. And he's mercifully healed me from so many of this, that my own sin. And I recognize my real need. So, we're going to take a pause from this, the story, and we're going to look at that parable that Jesus teaches in Luke 18. So, take out your Bibles with me. If you have the red Bibles, the ones that we supply, it's page 732. Otherwise, it's in Luke 18. I'm going to start in verse 10. Okay. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So in this part of the story, the original hearers of this story would have immediately picked up on this. The Pharisee was the good guy. We hear it differently, but they would have thought, Pharisee, good guy. Pharisees were generally the spiritual elite in their community. These were heroes of the faith for the Jewish folks. The tax collector, on the other hand, was the bad guy. He preyed on 
people, their own people. He uh, was considered a traitor to their own people, and he preyed on the vulnerable. Okay? So the next verse, verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, I know that this sounds audacious to say this, but, um, but think about it this way. The Pharisee was doing all the right stuff. He was praying, right? He lifted his eyes to heaven. He's fasting, he's giving. However, he did not recognize his own need before God as he stood there. And he was judgmental of the other guy. Verse 13, but the tax collector, right, the bad guy in the story, stood at a distance, and he could not even look up to heaven. He beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. So what's shocking about this is that the tax collector was not even praying correctly. According to Jewish customs, he was looking down. He wasn't even looking up to heaven. He wasn't even doing it right, right? He doesn't even raise his eyes to heaven, and he beats his chest as a sign of his own unworthiness. And then verse 14, Jesus interprets what this parable means. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than this other man, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I can actually remember the first time I read this passage. And it was like really good news for me. I totally identified with the tax collector in this, right? As you could imagine. It was really good news. I had this fresh batch of God's mercy and I was experiencing his grace and his mercy. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. And I was recognizing my need like that tax collector. And it was good news that he who humbles himself will be exalted, right? But that was almost 20 years ago, right? Fast forward a little while. Like many of you, I've been now on this journey with Jesus for a while. And by God's grace, he's progressively changed things in my life and he healed me from a lot of the things that, a lot of the pain I had. He's been patiently pulling the weeds out of my garden of my messy heart for years now. He's been maturing aspects of my character. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that I've fully arrived, guys, but I'm not where I started, right? Just like many of you. Um, I'm grateful that he's changed my life. But let me be vulnerable here. Here's the problem. Now when I read this passage, it's not very comforting. It's more of a warning, right? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The truth is, is that in my lowest moments, I could almost hear my heart say, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector, like who I was. I pray, I fast, I tithe. Yikes. This is a warning, right? So is Jesus telling us, go ahead and... Let's mess everything up again, right? As he's saying, let's undo the healing that we've, that we've received. Let's stop fasting, stop tithing. Let's become a swindler again. Let's start selling some drugs. Get a fresh batch of mercy, right? <laughs> Is he essentially telling us to re-become the tax collector? Of course not, right? Even 
Paul knew that this was the temptation of the church when, with the idea of God's mercy and grace, and he's, he just said it. Um, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it anymore? So this parable is a warning to those of us that have received some level of healing from God, and, some ev- and there's some evidence of that healing in our life. See, the enemy of our souls wants to sneak in to our thoughts and tell us, you're good. You're fine now. It seems to me that the first step that the enemy wants to take in our lives as we are growing in him is to interrupt your healing process, your growth, and to stop you from pursuing the mercy of God and to stop you from recognizing your current real needs now. The enemy wants you to stop searching the garden of your heart looking for the next weed that's popping up. He wants you to stop looking. So, in fact, this parable, and this is where looking at it in context is very, very helpful. Um, Do you know what's right before this parable that Jesus shares? It's another parable. (laughs) Um, and And Jesus summarizes that parable by asking his disciples this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Isn't that interesting? He asks his disciples, Like, when I come back, am I going to find faith? Knowing what was going on in the hearts of the disciples, he then tells this parable. He tells them, uh, he pulls aside some folks, it says in verse 9, who were confident in their own righteousness. And then he tells them this, this verse. That's the context. In other words, Jesus knew that some of the disciples, when they were asked the question, when I return, will there be faith on earth? They were thinking, I'm good. I'm safe. I'm, I'm confident of, in my own righteousness. So this then was a warning that he delivered. He, we see we, re, we need to remain connected to our desperate need for God in a presence in our life right now. If, even if we've received a bunch of healing in our lives, there's so much more, guys. You're, this isn't over. There is more that God wants to do in your life. There's, he's not done with you. Whether you can relate to the tax collector this morning and you, are, you understand your need, or you can relate to the Pharisee, or you can relate to the disciple, he wants you to recognize your need for him. So how do we do this? I have three observations, three quick things I'd like to share on how we can remain connected to our need. First, as the parable says, we need to resist the temptation to compare. The, the Pharisee was comparing himself to the tax collector. I think a lot of our stuckness, frankly, comes from our comparing our state with somebody else, not comparing ourselves to a holy God. And we quietly say to ourselves, I'm good. At least I'm not struggling with that. Or at least I'm not in that position. Because we all have the opportunity to see other people sin, and we compare that against ourselves. But see, we need to stay on our own journey. We need to stay on our own road. We need to stay in our own garden and understand what it is that God has for us next. So um, I was reading a commentary on this passage um, in Augustine from the 5th century. People have been reading this a long time, guys. Um, uh, Said this of this passage, how useful and necessary a medicine is repentance. 
The Pharisee was not rejoicing so much in his own clean bill of health as he was comparing his disease to another. It would have been much more worthwhile to inform Jesus by confession of the things that were wrong in his own life instead of, the, of um, having the nerve to crow over the scars of others. It is not surprising that the tax collector went away cured since he was not ashamed to show the doctor where his pain was. In other words, imagine this. You're standing before the great physician and you're talking about somebody else's pain. Instead of your own, how are you going to identify the disease that you have if you're talking about somebody else's pain and not your own symptoms? Okay, second thing is realize that this can be more difficult in our context, okay? I had the opportunity with Melissa and our oldest son to be missionaries in Ethiopia for a while, and we lived in this context where needs were very apparent. Um, and it often strikes Christians when they travel to places like Ethiopia. First thing is, is that the needs can be overwhelming. But then the second thing that they realize, that they recognize, is the spiritual vitality in these places. Man, it's powerful. And I just submit to you that possibly when, you, when your needs are more obvious, it's easier to recognize them. Whereas for us, there is a hazard in our culture um, when, you don't, when you don't have to think about your needs often, you don't really pursue recognizing them. So the second observation is simply to recognize this may be more difficult for us, something may, we might need to practice a little bit more. Okay? And then the third thing is recognize that uh, real needs are a partnership. Recognizing real needs uh, is a partnership between the Holy Spirit and us. Okay? So David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there are any offensive ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That says Psalm. Notice here that David recognizes he needs help in discovering his own needs. He can't do it alone. And that the purpose behind him discovering his needs is to be led in the way everlasting. Okay? We often think that coming in close contact with our needs is like this disastrous thing. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't want to know any of my own needs, right? We want to almost kind of pretend like they're not there. Um, but also recognize that the purpose that David articulates here in God revealing our needs is not for condemnation's sake. It's for forgiveness's sake. It's to be led in that way everlasting. So God does not want us to continue to struggle with the same things forever. He wants to help us cultivate the garden of our heart so that the garden of our heart can produce good fruit. The fruits of joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Everybody, regardless of where you're at in your journey, needs more of those things. You never arrive in having enough peace joy. So, although we do have that patient, faithful friend in the growth of our process, it does require something of us, too. It's a partnership. We have to be willing to examine our own hearts stringently. We have to invite that great gardener into the garden of our hearts 
and allow him to dig a little bit down to the root of our weeds. In other words, we have to get our hands dirty and get past the visible part of the weed down into the dirt, okay? Um, Galatians 6, uh, Paul says, each one should test their own way, uh, their own actions without comparing themselves to another. This is really interesting because in this, Paul is actually teaching the other leaders of the church how to help people in their sin. And then he says, to test your own heart. So, in other words, we have to be testing our own hearts. This is some, a process that we need to go through. We have to be willing to scrutinize our lives stringently, not cheaply. We have to be willing to do the hard work of getting to the root of the weed in our garden. This is where the really good work happens, guys. It's past the surface level because if we don't go to the root, what happens to the weed? All the gardeners in the room comes right back up. You've got to get it at the weed, at the, at the root. And to put it in, a, in another context, if you know that you've got a problem boasting and you kind of hear yourself boasting a lot, try to just stop boasting and not go to the root of that. It's just going to come right back. We've got to get deeper than that. We have to evaluate our lives a little bit more stringently, not cheaply. Don't just cut off the weed, get to the root. And I think that the Holy Spirit is there to help us to do that. See, the Pharisee, for instance, in the story was giving, serving, tithing. He appeared to have, be doing the right things. However, the weed in his garden was arrogance and disdain for his brother. He missed the loving of invitation of the father to dig deeper, to connect to his real need. He missed the opportunity that the tax collector took. He recognized his own need for God. Okay, so what does this look like? What does it look like for us to recognize our own need and to stop pretending like we don't have them? When I'm having a hard time recognizing my need, it does happen sometimes in communion. I'm like rushed, and we get to this point, and it's like, okay, uh, uh, what, what did I do wrong this, this week? Uh, right? It's, it's like too, it's too surface level. I need to maybe spend some time, I need to spend some time evaluating, going a little bit deeper than that asking harder questions of myself, not evaluating this too cheaply. Why did I do that? Why did I do this? Why didn't I do what I knew I should have done? Why did I? Does that make sense? So in closing, I'd simply say this. Whether you are just now recognizing that you need God for the first time in your life, or if you are Maybe like the, the disciples and you feel like, well, I'm doing all right. I'm good. Or if maybe you are the Pharisee in this story and you can relate to that. The same thing applies. We need to recognize our need for God. There's more love. There's more joy. There's more peace that's available to you than is imaginable. He wants to make us whole. The Holy Spirit is here to help us. Weeds grow in gardens. It happens. But God wants to produce beautiful fruit through your life. So let's pray. Let's have the courage to pray David's prayer together right now. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. 
See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.